What's up, punks? It's Shinobi, and we're bringing you Block Digest number 197 on Wednesday, November 6th at Block Height 602,613. So what, what what's up, Janine? Yo, yo. Um, well, the biggest thing is that uh, many of you know that we're both fans of Room 77, and tomorrow is going to be the 100th uh, meetup there. So it's been going on for over eight years now, and it's so it's going to be a special day. Fucking epic. Like, I, I, I seriously, like, love that place. Like, Berlin is a place that I want to go back to just because of that fucking bar. Oh, man. Alrighty. So banter or straight to business i don't know do you want to talk about kitties <laughs> so uh you, you kitties well, what's up with kitties why, why'd you say kitties i just got me some crypto kitties and that's all <laughs> ew ew you're dead to me <laughs> not those kinds of crypto kitties I don't believe you. Well, should we talk about uh, a person who is way more mischievous than any cat in the world? Yeah. 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 Tears, up, tears up more furniture and infrastructure than any cat. Let's go. So uh, uh, we've talked about the ongoing case between uh, Kleiman, the Kleiman estate, and Craig Wright a number of times now, and thankfully uh, that may soon be coming to some kind of end, um, because if you've been following uh, Stephen Pally, uh, he tweeted two days ago, or actually three days ago now, um, one of the latest documents in the docket for that case in Florida and it's pretty interesting because I think it's in the second screenshot. Um, there's a part, it's basically talking about like what the court has, what decisions the court has made while I think they've been in kind of limbo because Craig has basically been stringing them along and delaying things and they've finally had enough. And so it says that on October 30th, without any advance notice, the plaintiffs were informed that Craig could no longer finance the settlement and was, quote, breaking the non-binding settlement agreement. Uh, to that end, plaintiffs began shifting back into preparing for trial with much lost time. One such action was to contact James Wilson, the CFO of Craig's companies, in 2012-2013, um, the time during which Dave was alive and Craig alleges he sold Dave interest in his companies in exchange for a fortune of Bitcoin. Uh, let me shift to the next one, which I think goes more into that. Um, 
Basically, it says uh, the fact that Craig doesn't have 14 days notice of this deposition is a product of his own conduct. He asked the parties to pause the litigation process and concentrate on amicably resolving this dispute only to put his consent with no advance notice without good cause and at a time when it simply wasn't possible to give him the full 14 days notice. So yeah, basically Craig is saying that the settlement that they roughly came to, um, he's not going to be able to pay that. Uh, who knows why, you know, because he claims to be Satoshi with access to all this Bitcoin, but he won't be able to pay that. And so he's probably going to get even more screwed from this point on in this lawsuit. So, yay, finally, we're coming to an end. But of course, as we've seen over the past uh, week or so, there are plenty of other fake Toshis that will keep popping up. And we just have to remember, this is where they all end up in the courtroom. <laughs> I mean, this this is going to be hilarious to watch unfold in real time, but I don't really think this is going to be the end of it. Like, I, I think uh, Painted Frog, um, if I remember the handle right on Twitter, uh, he's like, I think he's pointing out exactly where this is going. Like, Craig already knows he's going to lose this. He can't come up with the money to, to pay this off. So it's all just about controlling how um that this goes against him in court so that he can still maintain some kind of core cult of a people who who look at this as like oh this doesn't prove anything they're just persecuting him because because they don't like him yeah and um i just want to point out so stephen pally says that the the plaintiff still has a problem because if you're trying to collect from someone with no ass i don't think he has no assets but Essentially, in the, with these kinds of figures, he has no assets in comparison. So um, he says, good luck getting it paid. D don't get me wrong, Wright will get destroyed at trial if he's not destroyed first and further motion practice. The much better resolution for the plaintiff is a negotiated settlement. Um, so Craig Wright getting destroyed is not necessarily the best uh, result in terms of the plaintiff, but... I mean, I think for all of us, that's probably the best outcome for this guy. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, it's just about, like, you, you're never going to convince the brain-dead cultist at this point. It's about making things obvious enough for new people coming in that they don't get swept into this narrative. Because, like, this whole thing is going to take time to collapse and I, I think we're kind of getting there but you know um i think alvin kyer or calvin Iyer just unfollowed Enchain on twitter a little bit ago and um his lawyers have also um i think pulled out of the negotiations with the climate estate because they've assessed that there is no actual claim to any kind of ip that's worth anything so it's like you can start to see those those fragments forming but like Enchain still exists and has funding. So that needs to burn down. Like Calvin needs to decide he's not putting any more money into this shit because it's not working. And it's like, it's, it's going to take a while for those dominoes to all finally fall. Oh, but what will all the poor PhDs do that have been writing all of the white papers? <laughs> Probably not anything in this ecosystem because they've destroyed their possible reputations in it <laughs> i mean come on like i mean it depends on what you what you qualify as the ecosystem but undoubtedly if they end up anywhere it's going to be like ripple 
or maybe even Bitcoin.com or something like that. They're going to end up in one of these, you know, offshoots that we don't really like very much and they don't like us very much. I don't even think they'll be able to pull that. I mean, like, do you think Ripple would want to associate themselves with Enchain people and indirectly Craig Wright when they have enough problems with bullshit getting called as it is? Yeah, maybe. Maybe he'll team, like, because there was a really funny fake transcript. It was like Craig Wright and Calvin Iyer messaging the new German fake Toshi and be like, hey, let's like collaborate, but can we just agree that like I'm the real, I'm the real Satoshi? I think all of these fake Toshi should just get together and just, yeah, just one, one big fake Toshi team and see where that goes. I mean, that's not outside of the realm of reason. Like, the, the whole Satoshi was a team nonsense is, is a very popular meme at this point. And, I mean, even Craig is, like, used that meme. So, I mean, like, you, that, that could absolutely happen. And then we'll have another fork, and it'll be called, I don't know, Bitcoin Multiple Satoshi's Visions or something. Satoshi's Apostrophe Vision. Yeah. All right. I think we've beaten this dead horse enough. So let's move on to the next thing. All right. So this is uh, this is fun. Uh, Bloomberg uh, posted a piece the other day um, claiming that the tether and and by extension a single whale was literally what caused the the pump of 2017. Bloomberg is trying to claim with a straight face that one person using Tether is responsible for the entire 2017 bubble. That's just outright fucking delusional. Um, you know, and to, to kind of trace this around through um, or from the source to a bunch of different routes. Um, first of all, the tether aspect of it is based on debunked nonsense uh, at this point, uh, you know, relating to tether being printed out of thin air. And we, we've seen multiple pieces of evidence of, you know, bank um, holdings in different places, transfers. Um, there's still not a single person who has been able to come forward and show that they tried to redeem tethers and were unable to um you know we have the 800 million actual dollars that were confiscated by multiple governments um try reconciling that with they don't have money and print it out of thin air um and then you know just to kind of back out of the, the whole tether aspect just the idea that you know, a small subset of exchanges that list Tether are, are the only reason that the price is pumped. Like we did not see massive increases in user registration on all the exchange platforms. Like we haven't had multiple CEOs like Jesse Powell of Kraken come out and, and talk about the massive increases in bank wire deposits during that whole period. Bloomberg says no, no, no. This was just a single person that that literally directed this entire global market um they, they must be getting really fucking desperate to to smash that price down to accumulate some um because this is the most absurd thing in the world for a, an organization that has the kind of mainstream credibility 
that that Bloomberg does. It's absurd. Yeah, and I just want to point out. Um, so this isn't just Bloomberg. This the the author of this article was Matt Lessing, and he's the same guy who. I mean, this is this this story was a perfect follow up to the Craig Wright thing because uh, Matt Lessing was the same guy who wrote the articles about like oh new you know key passages from Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, you know Bitcoin beginnings and stuff like that and. I think that was last summer or something. And there was this whole thing where he was like tweeting out links to the so-called Nakamoto family foundation and all of this bullshit. And we were like, this is clearly stupid. You did not, you did not fact check this properly. And he didn't give a shit. And I don't think he ever corrected it. So the fact that he wrote this article, it's like anybody, everybody should doubt it on its face just because he wrote it because he doesn't have a good history of, of of publishing useful information <laughs> yeah but you know it's the, the the way i'm looking at it is because like even i don't really to the degree you do pay attention to individual journalists on pieces like i do that a decent amount of the time but it's not something universal i do I and mean, normal people don't do that at all so it's it's just more about the fact that this company and their editors allowed this to to get published when like i i believe even bloomberg themselves have have covered um stuff regarding tether and where they're actually storing their money so even bloomberg's own reporting contradicts what what's in this article and it's it's that kind of organizational level insanity that that really blows my mind yeah i mean that's that's one of the it's like on the scale of like some organizations who claim to be objective journalists, they try to make all of the opinions in their pieces homogenous. Um, there's not really any disagreement between any of them. And then you have other outlets where they have one person saying one thing and another person saying the completely opposite thing. And if it's an opinion piece, that's one thing. But if it's about like matters of fact, like what actually happened, who is responsible for this, um, that, sh you know, that you shouldn't have that much room for ambiguity that you, you should be able to publish two different articles that have two different conclusions. But of course, Bloomberg is part of the mainstream media. And one of the things they do is, of course, they publish articles like that because they want people who, who you know, have come to agree with one or either conclusion to still read their, you know, read something on their news site, even though they don't really have good evidence for one or either side. They just want to present both so that they can get everyone reading it. So, yeah. Yeah, they care more about clicks and revenue than actual, like, factual reporting or honesty. It's, it's you know, fuck the media. All right, though. Uh, I guess we could move along to the next thing. Yep. All right. So this is, um, you know, not really much new here. Um, we have talked about this before on the show, but uh, it's you know at the end um, some new developments that I'm sure you already know about, Janine. But um, there is a, a project in uh, Venezuela by Randy Brito called the Loca Mesh Initiative, um, and, and Coinbase uh, just recently kind of did a 
analysis piece on it and it kind of brought my attention back to it um and the, the new development at the end but i just kind of wanted to go back into the, the whole thing overall i mean it, it's pretty much um very small um you know kind of arduino like devices um that have a whole wallet built on them and mesh net functionality and the, the whole reason that uh randy you know started developing this is just um going through a power blackout in, in venezuela in uh march i think this year and just you know realizing like how much difficulty there is in in adopting something like bitcoin in a, in a place where the power isn't even going to stay on reliably uh, so no no internet no um you know non-battery powered devices and so he started working on this uh this this project here and there, there's two different um prototypes running on different hardware um, one he calls terpio and one he calls harpy and pretty much the, the whole gist of this is that you know if you have a dense enough user base um everybody can just hop through things until they get to a, a node with internet access and um they actually during a 22 hour period um had a bunch of these devices running hooked up to the blockstream satellite so that um at least just to validate um things like local channel balances um and that they're still open you don't even need access to the internet you just have the the blockstream feed being picked up and then all the information pushed out along the mesh network to people with these wallet devices and so on top of this they naturally built a lightning wallet and it's just you know, this this is exactly what needs to happen to really start making this usable for commerce in the situations where you would want to, not not just replacing debit cards that, that work okay in the first world. And I mean it's like this staying up for twenty-two consecutive hours completely disconnected from the internet, that's amazing. Because, like, really think about it. With this wallet, this device, as long as you have something like this, this um, hook up to the Blockstream feed, you don't need internet access to do anything except open or close a channel. And if you have a channel graph set up between people in your area with these devices, everybody can transact um, completely disconnected from the internet over Lightning. Because it's all done over the mesh network, all the, the people involved in these channels are connected over the mesh network. And as long as you have that feed from the satellite to verify all these channels are still open, that's all you need. And so the, the, the big news here is um, at the Lightning Conference, um, they're actually looking for investors and donors to start um, producing these um, as consumer devices instead of just kind of the... Uh, DIY open source project uh, status that's been occupying right now. And I mean, that is fucking amazing because like it's these types of devices and systems are not just, you know, amazingly useful in a place like Venezuela with those conditions. I mean, this is just uh, an awesome general purpose model for lightning use everywhere. And it just has the, the, the added benefit that it can work to in places where your government shuts the power off or shuts the internet off. And like this is exactly where like wallet development needs to go in terms of actual use. Like the whole stack, hardware up to software. 
Like you can't just assume that a, a phone is good enough or everybody has a phone or that phone will work when you need it to. Like we need to cover the whole stack. And th this project is fucking amazing. Alrighty. Uh, next up, I take it. Alrighty. So next up, um, used Jaeger uh, from Lightning Labs, I believe. Um, yeah. As working on a, a new app for the Lightning Network, um, pretty much a messaging app um, that actually routes messages onion encrypted over the Lightning Network itself, paid for, um, you know, with Satoshi's through Lightning. And like, honestly, um, th this has been catching on as a really popular idea um, since he tweeted out about this, but you know, and I, I don't mean to be an asshole about this. Um, I think it's really kind of fucking stupid. Um, like this is just not long-term thinking. This is not really something with a pressing need. And like trying to, to mesh these two things together comes with all kinds of, of problems here. Um, you know, I've, I've said multiple times, I don't think that the lightning network is going to stay perfectly decentralized. Like a lot of people, uh, think it will in terms of routing. And, and I don't think that matters because of the, the onion encryption, but like this kind of stuff is exactly what's going to prove me right in that. Because what you're doing here is you're effectively, um, taking the actual message routing and tying that to the payment routing. So now the only routes that a message can take through this network are the same that a payment can. They're constrained by the liquidity dynamics. And so you force that network load to exactly overlap with payment routing. And I mean, that's, that's kind of a, a stress there. That's a resource um, cost that all these nodes have to pay, even if they're compensated for it. And it, it raises the requirements to actually participate in that routing. Like, I, I think that trying to, this, this is pretty much, in, in my opinion, trying to take something on the application layer and bake it into deeper layers of the protocol. And I think that's really short-sighted and, and stupid. And ultimately, like, what? Why do we need to deeply tie an encrypted messaging platform to something like the Lightning Network? What real value add does that create beyond look what we're doing with the Lightning Network? I mean, I I feel like we're still in the stage where people can just come up with ideas for these kinds of things and see, you know, would they work? Do they make sense? It doesn't really surprise me. I don't know whether it'd be useful in the long term for actually doing messaging though. Yeah, but the the, the point is is just the the way like it's being tied together is like you are now inextricably tying the costs of this messaging service to the payment routing like you're you're adding this this burden and this thing that the lightning network has to deal with that ultimately has nothing to do with routing or managing value and i i think that's that's really kind of foolish to try and tie things together like that 
you know, because like I've I've specifically thought about using the Lightning Network for other things like this, um, specifically um, routing um, Xiaomi and eCash tokens. But the, the whole way of doing that I was thinking of is is it's a completely independent thing from routing a payment over the Lightning Network, like a flag that nodes can set or not um, saying they'll pass these messages. And there's no tying that to the actual lightning channel. So the, the constraints for routing like a Chalmian token um, through a few hops, um, they're not constrained by that channel topology like this would be. And it's like, you, you, I think you need to, to keep clean separations between those things or you just start building up garbage that everybody down the line has to deal with. Alrighty. I'm going to take that as nothing more to say here. Yep. All right. So next up is a new version of C Lightning. Uh, 0.7.3 has just dropped. And this is the second um, release they've made since they've set for themselves a goal of a new release every two months. So let's see if they can stick with it. Um, some pretty nice changes here. Um, first up, um, they, they've re-architected things um, to move away from the SQLite 3 um, database engine that they use natively. Um, and you can still use that if you want or um, anything else. So this is pretty much set up now so that the, the database for um, all the data management is, is as, as they put it in this, bring your own database. Um, you're not constrained to, to use what they initially set everything up with. So that is going to be an awesome thing in terms of extensibility for big routing nodes or more professionally managed things because they can now just heavily optimize the, the database for whatever their scale or use case is and not just be confined by what C Lightning set as a default. Um, next up is official support for Liquid. Um, so you can now use Lightning over LBTC. Um, although I do believe um, confidential transactions and um, issued assets are not supported. Um, they have made some tweaks to the gossip protocol to try and um, make a, a bit of bandwidth use improvements um, in trade-off for slightly slower propagation. So we'll see how that plays out in the long term. Um, as well, they now have support for signing and verifying messages from a Lightning Node's public key. So this is a nice thing. Um, you can actually verify um, who you're interacting with um, outside of the scope of routing payments and things. That's very useful. Um, as well, they have introduced some more intelligent coin control features. Um, to kind of build on the work they did allowing um, funding or closing out to external wallets. And, you know, to go into this a little bit more, they've also um, added um, encryption to the master seed um, stored on disk. So some security improvement there, as well as a few more RPC calls that are um, Again, going back to kind of coin control effectively in terms of what scripts um, you are giving the, the counterparty in the channel um, to like do things like which address does a state pay out to, um, so on and so forth. 
Um, but there are some limits um, in terms of cooperative closes, or I'm sorry, not cooperative, um, unilateral closes um, still cannot go out to um, an external address because the, the protocol effectively has a specific address derivation format for that. And so it's, it's kind of not something you can do right now without protocol changes. But you know, overall, these are some pretty awesome um, updates, and you know, it's it's kind of just really building on like the the thing I've been harping on uh, for a while with C Lightning is making it modular, extensible, something that you can just plug and play and customize as easily as possible. And you know, it's they're they're really locking that niche down in terms of Lightning implementations out there. Alrighty. I do believe uh, one more thing, if you got nothing to say, Jenny, and then you're up. Yep, that's good. All right, so there is some progress, not much though, happening with an ongoing conversation about adding anchor outputs um, to lightning channels. And so pretty much, um, the, the gist of this here is when you are creating a channel, um, the unilateral close transaction, so the, the channel state, um, have to set a fee. Uh, that, that, that's baked in um, the, the way that these transactions are structured. So you have to kind of just guess and hope that the fee you set there is enough to get you confirmed quickly whenever the channel closes or whenever you, you go to close it unilaterally. And so this whole concept of an anchor output has been an idea on how to address that. And pretty much the, the idea is that aside from the um, two outputs and the commitment that lead to both parties getting their money back, each um, party in the channel would effectively also have an anchor output um, that's just there for them to do child pays for parents. So that if in the event of them having to unilaterally close the channel and fees are much higher than when they actually set the initial fee, they can simply spend that anchor output with a higher fee and get the um, unilateral close confirmed faster. But there's um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of stuff uh, to really discuss over this. Um, you know, first off, um, is some issues with child pays for parent in the mempool. Um, there is a limit on how many chained transactions spending ones prior, um, can exist in the mempool at a certain time. And so this is a potential attack in that you can string out a bunch of child pays for parents to the maximum, um, length possible with a, a low fee overall for everything in this chain of transactions and guarantee that this is going to take forever to confirm because nobody can add another transaction after you've hit that limit. And so there, there's actually a, a change merged in the next release of core that's going to add an exception to this rule where when you hit that limit of how many transactions can be chained together in the mempool, um, there's always um, one extra one that you can add to that if it's below a certain size. So the, the whole idea here is that if somebody were to do this kind of attack, um, the other channel party could still add 
um, something to the, the very end that, that would speed up the confirmation. Um, as well, um, th there are some issues around how big these anchor outputs have to be. Um, for instance, they, they have to be above the dust limit on the network, otherwise the, the transaction is invalid. As well as some concerns over exactly what script is in these anchor outputs, like how you generate the public key for that. Um, because there are some concerns over um, privacy using watchtowers. If you were to just use the same script over and over again, then the, the way that um, encrypting things to a watchtower it works now, at least on paper, would allow a watchtower to decrypt a bunch of previous things um, as opposed to just the, the channel state they need to respond to. And so there's some consideration going on about having a whole different um, derivation path um, and set for addresses in these anchor points. But this is, you know, it, this is something that, that really needs to get flushed out and dealt with because that is a legitimate problem with the current implementation of Lightning. Like if you have a very low fee and fees go up, like this is very problematic for anybody who has to close a channel unilaterally. And so it's nice to see this going forward, but it's, it's probably one of those things that's going to be a while before, you know, consensus uh, is found. All right, Janine, that's you. Yeah, so another uh, court case that we've been talking about over and over again is the uh, settlement between the victims of Mount Gox and Mount Gox, and or whatever remains of Mount Gox. And um, the last couple of episodes that we've talked about this were 152, 167, 169. Um, in episode 152, we talked about them extending the period that the compensation plan could be submitted and finalized. Um, and originally that was supposed to be um, October 28th, but as of the end of this October, um, that deadline has now been extended again by the trustee to March 31st, 2020. Um, so they basically, the Tokyo District Court agreed to um, extend the deadline just before it was about to expire because I guess they still need more time. And in one of the other episodes I listed where we talked about this, um, they also said that they would be accepting claims that were in the billions of dollars because um, if you hadn't noticed, the market valuation of the assets which were lost is now over six billion, or it's over $7 billion actually. Um, and of course, Due to the fact that the deadline for the plan has now been extended again, that means that obviously any actual remuneration that would eventually happen is also going to be pushed back. So I have a feeling that this case is going to go on for at least another year or two, if not longer. Yeah, I mean, this is it's just... This is so much nonsense to, to work through. I mean, it's like one, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably the case that the, a very large chunk of users with outstanding claims are Westerners. So foreign to the jurisdiction that this is happening in. Um, you know, there, there's still all of the, the nonsense about um, ownership and the legal battles going on over there. And then, like, there, there's still, like, the, the civil rehabilitation uh, leaves the door open 
for people actually directly receiving Bitcoin out of this, but that that's still like a, a maybe like that, that it's possible, but that's not a guarantee. And it's just, there's so many factors to this. Like everybody I know who actually has a claim open to this is pretty much just looking at it. Like, I don't know, maybe I'll get some money back in 10 years. That'd be cool. But like I, I feel like a lot of the motivation from claimants is, is just like, it's it's like i i have no control over this let's see what happens yeah i mean 10 year 10 years is <laughs> relatively uh optimistic at this point considering how long this has been dragging on i mean it took so long for this case to even come about in the first place it's been quite a long time now so it wouldn't surprise me if it takes a lot longer for this to actually play out Ah, it is going to be, watch, by by the time this is actually getting near a close, there, there's going to be functional assassination markets and, and bounties out on, on people involved in this in their heads. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just glad that I never used this exchange or any other for that matter, because my Bitcoins were always my Bitcoins. I'm not gonna lie. I'm kind of angry that I never went through uh, going on to Mount Gox because if if I had been trapped in this and if this you want does... the paper, don't you? You want the special Japanese paper? No, I just think it would be nice that if this works out in the end, um, I would have effectively had a forced hodl that there was no way for me to fuck up with very poor self control. Um, yeah, that's, that's one strategy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but I, I have a feeling we'll be talking about this for many episodes to come. Alrighty, uh, dive into the next one. So Binance, um, is planning on opening an office in Beijing. And this, this will actually kind of tie into, uh, two of the next stories but um you know some of you might remember um a little while ago on twitter uh he he made a comment about alipay um deposits into binance and the actual operator of alipay's twitter account responded and went no uh well um whoever was running that twitter account obviously wasn't paying attention because that has officially been announced and they are now pushing towards opening a, an office and kind of putting a business footprint in mainland China, despite all of the their general attitude over the last year. And really, I think a lot of this is pretty tightly intertwined with uh, President Xi's comments regarding blockchain use and their central bank's attempts to try to launch this uh, cryptocurrency by the end of this year. So sometime around this holiday. And like, it's really like where this is going. Mark my words, in, in the next year or two, you are going to see centrally controlled digital currencies backed by Bitcoin in China. Like mark my words. Because the, 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 their entire government as totalitarian and sociopathic as it is the one thing they are is long-term thinking 
and they're caught between a rock and a hard place, they very much probably want the the scarceness and the, the sound money aspect of Bitcoin when it comes to national reserves. But they absolutely do not want their citizens using something that would completely destroy their ability to institute capital controls. And so really the, the only answer there is you build a controlled system on top of that and that's what your citizens are allowed to use. I mean, mark my words, like Binance moving in is, is like, it's just a signal. Like this is going to happen. This is probably in the works and this is how shit's going to play out. So to jump into the, the next one that ties into this, um, China has released um, the Industrial Structure Adjustment Guidance Catalog, um, which had a draft leaked in April. Um, and that draft in April had cryptocurrency mining as a business um, or industrial activity to be eliminated in China. That language does not exist in the official draft released. So as far as official policy put forward, like not speaking to unofficial attitudes about things, China has stepped back from the attitude that they want to push Bitcoin and cryptocurrency mining outside of the country. And that is a huge thing to step back from. So like, I, I really do not see any other explanation except connection to Z's push to actually institute a national cryptocurrency. I mean, like all of these things are like, there's just too much synchronicity and coincidence for there not to be common connections between these things. Like, this is the, the age of, of Bitcoin and, and these things affecting geopolitics. Like, they're here, they're not going away, and everybody's paying attention to them now. Alrighty, into the next thing. So, Jesse Wilms from Bitcoin Magazine posted yesterday, or two days ago, sorry, a piece on the decentralization of Bitcoin mining. And the, the, the overall point of the piece um, was just to kind of look at the migration of mining out of China, which, you know, given the, the last piece of news, might not happen that way. And just kind of looking at all the different uh, jurisdictions in the world um, and how attractive they are for mining operations. I'm kind of looking at Norway, Scotland, Siberia, the Republic of Georgia, Paraguay, Iran, Venezuela, and Iceland were the, the main countries that they kind of looked at and looked through the, the pros and cons of all that. And I, I don't really think I have to get uh, too big into that, except, um, you know, to jog memory, uh, Paraguay is where uh, Bitmain, or not Bitmain, Bitfury, um, and Commons Foundation are attempting to um, build a mining operation on one of the biggest hydro dams on the planet. But the, the real important thing here, um, I think, is buried, and it's just glossed over really quickly. And it's the fact that Bitmain is operating a new service for mining companies. And pretty much the service is helping them find places to relocate or start new mines. And so when we look back in the bigger picture here of all the shenanigans that happened up in Quebec 
uh, with Hydro Quebec and their their moratorium, their their auction blocks for electricity prices. Bitmain going through with this uh, new farm in Texas. Um, the the fact that they still have operations in Washington State and the the Ant Creek LLC um, that's registered there with Jihan as an owner. Um, they're moving a little bit past just selling hardware and mining. And what I see here is attempting effectively to monopolize mining locations. But I, I almost guarantee their strategy here is be the first ones everywhere to line up deals and arrangements with power companies and suppliers, um, warehouse operators, all, all, all of the, the, the real estate and electrical infrastructure that you need for these kinds of operations and effectively become the middleman of setting up a mining farm like interject themselves and monopolize the, these energy sources and locations in terms of relationships or contractual agreements and then effectively try to sell them to the people actually mining and this is something i think is a very serious problem and a potential threat like yes bitmain is not doing well financially they have a huge bag of Bcash and all of the internal political nonsense going on between Jihan and McCree. But businesses can can cut things. They, they can trim fat. They, they can spin off divisions to, to get rid of liabilities. And they can move on. And this right here is, is a potential way to do that, that, that I think should not be written off. Because if, if they are able to actually monopolize enough relationships around the world that, that are necessary to actually start a, a sizable mining operation, that they've effectively given themselves that new foundation to, to rest on and just cut off whatever isn't viable in the business. And like point blank, Bitmain needs to go bankrupt and disappear from this ecosystem because they have been nothing but malicious in the entire history of their operations. Come on, Denise, you gotta have something on that one. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, definitely will not miss them in any way. I mean, I think since the beginning of this show, we've been basically chronicling Bitmain's downfall. Um, Especially because we started right after, or around the time of Segwit2x. So yeah, I'm looking forward to them not existing for very much longer. This is a potential way that they can survive, though. If, if they lock down enough contractual agreements between different electrical companies where it makes sense to mine, they, they can set themselves up so there's no real way to start mining with profitable electricity without going through Bitmain. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, maybe they can do that in China, but I, I think they're going to have a hard time getting enough of a monopoly in other countries considering how much their reputation in the last, especially the last year or two. I mean, that, that, that reputation, though, is mostly just to us. Like, normies just see a big Bitcoin company. And so, oh, they, they must be doing something right. They're big. And then another aspect of this is, 
what exactly is the dynamic between Bitmain and the Communist Party? Because there's really nothing to solidify any kind of shady arrangement there beyond just circumstantial speculation. But if a relationship like that does exist, they could effectively be subsidized to do something like this. And then that would be China actually gaining an influence and a hand in, in mining globally. As long as you know the, the countries this is happening in kind of have to stick by the contracts that get signed. Yeah, I mean, well, maybe maybe the opposite of Libra launching is the kind of thing that the U.S. government should actually consider looking into because, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg made this really stupid warning that if they don't let Libra go, they'll lose their dominance. I mean, I think they're going to lose their dominance anyway. There's no way in hell that Libra would save them anyway. Um, so maybe that's why there's a bunch of congressmen who are starting to buy into Bitcoin and get interested in Bitcoin and advocate for it in Congress. But at the end of the day, I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I got into Bitcoin because I wanted to not have to deal with these, the stupidity of these imperialist powers fighting over the monetary system and that having and you know a substantial impact where they have control so i hope that we don't look at this from a nation state perspective but yeah i guess that makes complete sense that bitmain would go that route if they think that as a whole is a big enough of a threat in bitcoin mining or broadly in other geopolitical areas to want to ally with them. I mean, they don't, it's not like they have any principles for decentralization at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. That's a, a, that, that's a big factor, but it's like, I really don't want the, the mining scene to just become like superpowers balancing each other. Like you said, it's like it's it's inevitable that governments will be some of those players but i really don't want to see it get monopolized like that this early before other types of operations really get a foothold like corporations you know communally funded co-ops or whatever other type of model it is like i want to see as many of those expand as possible before governments really get serious about jumping into mining otherwise they're going to dominate all of it wait until we get to the point where we've colonized other planets and the planets are fighting well that's real easy just don't live on earth and you can just throw rocks at everything <laughs> all righty though i think these are my last two stories if i'm right uh, technically one, but uh, two because Rodolfo is a dickhead. So the first bit is a firmware update dropped the 1st of November by cold card. Um, so there is now a new section in the uh, danger zone menu uh, where you should not be playing if you are not a developer, don't know what you're doing to view the seed words uh, for your wallet on screen so that you can make new paper backups if necessary. 
Um, there's also some nice um, new heuristics for validating the, the change address in a transaction. And these are not, it's not something that is 100%, like there can still be false positives um, based on the heuristics used. Um, but you know, they're, they're asking anybody who runs into a false positive, um, you know, reach out to them and show them a PSPT um, and, and they can try and, you know, iron that out of the heuristics so you don't get as many false positives. As well, um, a nice security improvement. Um, when you use the secure logout, it completely zeroes out the flash memory, um, which might have, you know, PSBTs in it or signed or unsigned transactions. So removing the uh, the data from all of that, um, that is really nice. Now the new firmware that was just dropped today uh, is pretty cool. Um, there is a login countdown feature. So there's effectively something that can be set where um, if you enter the correct pin, it enforces a countdown for a, a period and requires you to enter the pin again correctly before it actually loads the device. So you can actually introduce extra steps in terms of uh, you know what's going on to, to lock down your device. So that is really fucking cool. But yeah. Why the hell are other hardware wallet companies not iterating and making security improvements as rapidly? Like it's like I, I'm I'm biased here, but like what the hell? Like cold card is just knocking it out of the park. Oh right. Yeah, I, I actually because you brought up developer mode and I just since we're talking about hardware wallets, I was playing around with the keep key the other day and i don't i don't remember it being this horrible but um they must have made a bunch of changes in the last year or so where um when you're installing it like updating the firmware and everything you have to i mean most hardware wallets now you have to have some sort of bridge software like a i mean the browser extensions aren't working some of them might still work but it asks like part of the instructions for installing the firmware update is that you have to go into developer mode in your browser, which seems really strange. And just, I don't know what's going on there, but seriously, yeah, I found that kind of strange. So yeah, I like quickly getting disillusioned with a lot of the I mean I was disillusioned with Ledger for other reasons. Um disillusioned now with KeepKey, so yeah, cold card is the way to go, I feel like at this point. Woo! We did it. We did it, guys. We won. Wait, who won? Not you. Okay. Alrighty. Uh, busting balls aside, I guess uh, you're up on the last one. Yeah, so um, this is not a Bitcoin-related story, but since it is November 5th, remember, remember, um, there's also a lot of uh, actions and rallies going on related to Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning today in multiple places. Um, not, I don't think there's anything noteworthy going on with their legal cases. I haven't. 
Okay, they've quieted down a little bit. You might still be able to hear them, but hopefully I'm talking loud enough that you can't. I have no idea. It's 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 fine. Okay, so um because it's a big uh no November fifth is a big day in general, um V for Vendetta Day, as you might call it. Uh Guy Fox Day. Um Basically, there is a lot of uh, rallies and stuff going on for Julian Assange, especially also Chelsea Manning and whistleblowers in general, just because this holiday, um, if you can call it that, coincides with um, a lot of uh, those people wanting to get together and spread awareness. And so one of the articles that was published uh, recently was about Joshua Schulte, who is the alleged CIA whistleblower who released the Vault 7 files and was charged under the Espionage Act last year. Um, He is now attempting to challenge the constitutionality of the Espionage Act in federal court in the U.S. And so his lawyers filed a motion on the 4th to dis... Wait, it's actually not November 5th anymore. What am I talking about? I'm a day off. I got that completely wrong. Is the day after Guy Fox Day. And so on November 4th, the day before Guy Fox Day, uh, he filed a motion to dismiss counts 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6 in the second superseding indictment against uh, him because as there is no technical as there is technically no limits on how the Espionage Act can be applied against a defendant. Um, His lawyers argue that the provision being used against him is, quote, so vague and overbroad that it threatens to criminalize substantial amounts of protected speech essential to inform public society. Um, And then furthermore, the statute provides no standards to guard against arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement, um, end quote, which I think that that part there has absolutely played out and like there being discriminatory enforcement that's definitely played out very visibly regarding so-called official whistleblowers who leak things that are sanctioned and advantageous to their agencies of government and so you get this like interagency fighting where it's damaging to you know some other agencies um, of the u.s government who consider it illegal but then the agency of benefits doesn't think it's illegal blah 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 all of this infighting so if you want to read the full arguments that his lawyers made in the motion, you can. it's 27 pages long, but we can link it in the description. And I also want to read a portion of um, an article by Shadowproof uh, that covered this motion and gave more uh, context. Um, so they write, in September, the defense for Daniel Hale, a former U.S. Air Force language analyst, challenged the Espionage Act charges against him for allegedly disclosing documents to uh, intercept reporter Jeremy Scahill, which exposed a targeted assassination policy involving armed drones. Hale's attorneys invoked the legislative history of the Espionage Act and argued um, that he was being targeted for engaging in his First Amendment right to criticize his government. They took issue with the fact that the government does not have to prove that Hale had intent to harm the United States. The government simply has to show Hale knew he was violating the law. And so likewise, Schulte's attorneys are arguing that um, knowledge that one's conduct is unlawful in the case of Section 793 in the Espionage Act, that one's speech is prohibited, is not the same thing as having an evil motive or an intent to harm the United States. 
uh, end quote. Yeah, and I thought this was particularly important because I've always been quite disgusted but not surprised by the fact that basically, you know, anything that the U.S. can argue is unlawful, if as they think that as long as they can prove that, they think that that also somehow proves that the person intended to harm the United States, which is just, it's such a bizarre world to me, but we're still living in the age of, you know, they hate us for our freedoms, blah, 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 garbage pronouncements. And so this stuff is still around and people are still getting jailed over it. And I'm frankly getting tired of, you know, another day, another whistleblower getting added to the list of people that have to deal with these really draconian, outdated legal systems. And so, yeah, anyway, completely messed up on the day. God, Fox Day was yesterday, but I'm going to pretend it was today because this stuff is still important every day because we shouldn't forget. Wow, you mean deeply entrenched, unaccountable intelligence agencies regularly interfering with politics undermines a government's ability to function legitimately? Who would have thought? Yeah, it's almost like Assange didn't write a whole essay about this before, I think he wrote it before WikiLeaks was even founded. And yeah, why are people still surprised by this? No one apparently reads this work. Nobody reads anything these days, Janine. People are retarded. Well, I can tell you something that I read today that was quite funny. Um, in one of the carriers that I got, the instructions say that the carrier is suitable for 11 pounds of dog and 14 pounds of cat. What is the difference between dog and cat pounds? Well, obviously, dog pounds way more. Duh. I feel like this is... a. Uh, speciesism i feel like it's discriminatory against dogs because apparently dogs weighing less are acceptable and equal to a cat who is uh three pounds heavier okay so uh this just dropped uh while we were in the middle of recording um and it relates to the first new cold card firmware update and so pretty much the, the new heuristics to check the change address in a PSBT are in response to a potential attack. Um, and, and I want to clarify that this is, is more of an attack on a software wallet you are using to make the PSBT than it is the cold card, but they're mitigating it on the cold card itself uh, nonetheless. So, so pretty much the problem is um, if somebody is able to man in the middle that psbt um between the wallet generating it and the cold card and they know your master public key they're able to effectively create a change output that goes to some address in your wallet with a very large randomized index so like it, it pretty much an hd path is the master key and then some index specification, and then an index specification. And it, it's pretty much just nested um, references to a number space and an index to generate the key from. 
And so if the attacker is able to have a bunch of very large value randomized, um, you know, um, numbers into the derivation path, they can get an address that you have the private key for, but there's no practical way in hell you're going to figure out which address in your, your HD wallet that was to generate the private key, unless they tell you what the path is. So this was effectively a way for a software wallet you're making your, your transactions with um, to send your, your change somewhere uh, where they can effectively hold it hostage. And so um, the, the new heuristics used for checking PSVTs and the, the change output in them in the cold card is you know, an attempt to, to mitigate this. And they've kind of been overzealous in that. Um, so that's again, you know, like I said originally, there are possible false positives. So it's just a warning um, instead of just like killing the, the signing process outright. But in the future, they might move to just uh, failing um, a signing process that, that fails these heuristics if they can make them accurate enough. So um, TLDR. Um, not really an exploit with the cold card, more um, the, the wallet you're using to make the transactions to sign, but nonetheless, it's been mitigated on the cold card firmware itself. Uh, yeah, uh, have any final thoughts, Denise? <laughs> my, th my final thought is that, you know how we like to have windows that are somewhat soundproof on the street, I would like to have some more doors that are soundproof so that I can't hear people screaming in the hallways. Thank you. Someone please design that. Yeah, I don't know why soundproofing isn't like standard in apartments because it's driven me insane in almost every place I've lived. All right, I guess uh, my final thoughts is, I don't know, uh, go, go Bitcoin. Bitcoin moon. Moon! I have another final thought. Room 77, 100th meetup. Let's go. Woo! All right, punks. We'll catch you later. Adios. Bye. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is.